Welcome to the SF Weekly Podcast. I am Nick Veronin, your editor in exile, and I am joined by Kevin. Get in the chopper, Hume. <laughs> what to do, Kevin? How's it going, man? It's going all right. It's going all right. Um, it's good to be back. Yeah. I just got back from a vacation. I went, I got on an airplane Ooh. and went to uh, Montana and then a friend met uh, my, myself and Crystal out there, and we dro- and we drove back um, <clears throat> through um, through famous potatoes, Idaho. But uh, I gotta say, um, dude, the I I, th- I assumed that there was gonna be at least like a space between me and and the person next to me on the plane. Uh-huh. It was a full plane. Oh, both planes oh. full, packed to the gills. Um, and one of them was like a puddle jumper with like a like a. A, a prop plane yeah yeah i figured as much because montana is uh not a big place <laughs> yeah i don't think there's an international airport in no, montana <laughs> no i mean i should say it's a huge place it's not a big city place so yeah right right yeah. right i mean like the population of montana is less than or equivalent to um some bay area cities right so yeah so and i understand you're going on vacation I am, yes. Uh, we're leaving Sunday to go down to Southern California. We're going to be spending some time in Joshua Tree camping and then Excellent. a couple of days in San Diego afterwards. The great outdoors. Yes, road tripping. Road tripping. Woo-hoo. And um, well, the reason I quoted Arnold, uh, former governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> Was because uh, we had an incident, which we've discussed on this podcast before, Mm. the story of the hovering helicopter at the secret sidewalk in Niles Canyon. Yes. Yeah. A 420 event. Many, many moons ago. Many moons. I'm thinking 2002. I think it was 2001, possibly. Mm, I I think it was my very first 420, and we were like right around 17, 18, right around in there. Something like that. Yeah. Well, uh, this story is, of course, topical right now because we just published our 420 Man issue. It's on the streets now. Uh, features um, many cannabis-oriented stories, 420 being canceled at at, um, at Robin Williams Meadow, or Hippie Hill, as it's called. Yep. Um, Medmen, the, the, one, one of the, the bigger chains, is um, trying to come to town. Um, we got a story about a documentary on, um, searching for Sasquatch in the, uh, in, uh, the Emerald Triangle. I believe that would be Trinity County, uh, Humboldt County and Mendocino County, where a ton of pot has, um, always been grown or been grown for many generations. Um, and, uh, it's, it's a strange, magical, dangerous place. People disappear. Maybe Yeti is not the reason uh, or, uh, are Sasquatch are Sasquatch and Yeti the same thing? I think they're f- at least closely related. I feel like Cousins. Yeti might be more of like a Tibet, you know, Himalayan thing. Snow, a snowy, his snowy yeah, cousin. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and other um, other pot oriented stories. You can pick that up. That's on the streets right now. Um, the cover story is uh, about the commodification of psychedelics by former SF Weekly editor. Peter Astrid Kane, it's great. Um, oh, and then we had the story about um, a new billboard advertising um, 
advertising and making sort of a PSA. The billboard is a Jay-Z joint brought to us courtesy of Jay-Z and his company, Monogram, which is a legal cannabis company. And um, it says something along the lines of like, um, you can marry your first cousin in more states than you can legally buy weed or something. And the idea is that like, do you have any idea how many things are still legal? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and we need to get our shit together on, on legal cannabis. But, mm-hmm. um, the other side of the story is that, um, a law was recently enacted that prohibits billboards like this from appearing, um, on or within viewing distance of high, uh, interstate highways in California. And this billboard might bend the rules a little bit. I understand, um, you had a little bit of a, an adventure going to find us a picture of this billboard. Though, <laughs> yeah. Kevin. Cause I mean, I've, I, there's definitely numerous billboards that line, you know, I 80 and one one on the corridor there in downtown. So like, I wasn't sure where to start. You gave me an approximate location, uh, near like the hall of justice area, sixth and, sixth and bryant essentially which is where a lot of billboards are like the famous one that just came down the coca-cola sign mm-hmm. um it was not there okay. <laughs> um, so uh you know i was prepared to do some wandering this just happened to fall the day after i got my second covid shot so oh, uh i was feeling very lethargic uh and not not exactly sick but definitely feeling kind of warm and achy and not super great. So <laughs> I'm sorry. I was what like a champ. This, You're a champ. I was doing this sort of slow uh stumble down Bryant and, and and Harrison trying to find this thing. And I had essentially given up on trying to find it and was trying to find the a bus stop when I saw it uh near actually the central freeway uh split along division. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's actually in the like in the early center, cent, uh, section of the Mission District on, I think uh, I think it's still on Bryan Street, but it's in the Mission. So got it. It's on the side of a of a of a building that probably could be seen, but I, I you know it's not on this the most normal part of the billboards that I thought it would be on. So got took it. like an hour of stumbling to find it. <laughs> it was pretty funny. Well, it was, um, it's much appreciated. Um, and thank you. Uh, you are a gentleman and a scholar. <laughs> couldn't do it. Couldn't do this. Um, we couldn't put out the paper without you. Uh, Appreciate it. yeah. But anyway, I want to revisit, um, the secret sidewalk, the place mm-hmm. where that chopper hovered above us, um, as we were trying to smoke a bowl on the, uh, <laughs> on the top of this like water tower. Um, for a couple of reasons, you know, it's the, the 420 issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but also there is currently an effort. Um, there's an effort underway right now to turn that area, the so-called secret sidewalk, which is this, this aqueduct that's, you know, it's, it's rectangular, it's flat on top and it peaks out of the hills in Niles Canyon mm-hmm. in Alameda County in Fremont when you can walk on it, um, turn it into like a, a public park. Um, mm-hmm. cause people are out there anyway and uh why not i guess um folks our age um although apparently folks are our parents age used to go out there too but like yeah. i don't know maybe public officials are um 
you know, getting hip now. <laughs> I don't know, like more skate parks, you know, mm-hmm. I, I remember when I was a kid, it seemed like so hard to get a skate park built. And, and yeah. now I think that they're everywhere. They totally um, are. So the question is, is this cool or is this lame? Uh, does it, does the secret sidewalk lose its magic when local government takes over to, 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 to develop it and sign off on it? What do you I don't think? know. I mean, <sighs> I mean, it's it's already there. I mean, like, why not make use of more open space, especially in Fremont, which is, you know, a massive suburb and is surrounded by tons of open space, but maybe doesn't have like a really big open space park, from what I recall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, there's there's, there's, like there's Mission Peak you know, which Mm -hmm. is like probably the gem that everybody thinks about when they think about hiking in Fremont. Um, but like, you know, there's so many, you know, little Hills around that area, around the trains, the, uh, the little train tracks out there. Um, you know, and then there's, I don't know if that brick factory is still there, but like, you know, there's just so many cool little, little outcroppings and old buildings and things that people could check out that, yeah, you know, nice walk. It is a nice, it is a nice walk. You know, I mean, we, even though we were out there to be a little mischievous because we were teens and had to find places away from home to, to get high. um, I mean, we had fun hiking and doing stuff while out there, you know, I mean, it's, it was dangerous, but we also like went inside the aqueduct and and hiked (laughs) around and explored, you know, know. we we played around in the the defunct train uh, tunnel and stuff like things that people, (laughs) you know, are, are prone to do regardless of whether it's illegal or not. So why not open it up, make it safe, allow people to explore it. Um, and make it an open space that is, you know, people can take their dogs and, and, and stuff and, and things that people want, you know, make it yeah. more accessible. I am loath to direct SF Weekly podcast listeners to a competitor, but the story is on SF Gate, written by Susanna Guerrero. And it's it's a good story. You should check it out. It was published on April 13th. Um, there's a quote from that story. Speaking of what, what you just mentioned, Kevin, getting inside the aqueduct, um, Tim Ramirez, Director of Natural Resources and Land Management at San Francisco Public Utilities Commission, um, isn't sure why adolescents started to venture off to the secret sidewalk. I mean, come on, Tim. You know why. But said that trespassing has been problematic for the agency despite their efforts to post signs that say trespassing and loitering are forbidden by law. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> quote, it does happen on a regular basis. Ramirez told SF gate people have created holes in the aqueduct. <laughs> we didn't create the hole in there. We no, didn't do that. We, we did drop down in dropped there, into a, a hole. Yes. On the aqueduct. And then yeah. you go just a few feet and it's pitch black. It's scary. Yeah, it was terrifying. And it was before, you know, uh, cell phones with cameras and, and, and flashlights uh-huh. and things. So, you know, yeah. like we couldn't just, just have the little easily, Nokia screen. Yeah. You know, we couldn't just easily go down in it and act and have a light and, and be able to explore. It was, it was prehistoric times, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's it's interesting because I don't think that people uh, realize that that is, you know, SFPUC property. I'm pretty sure that yeah. used to be part of the Hetch Hetchy system. It might not be anymore, but, you know, it's still owned by the SFPUC and uh, that whole area. Yeah, I don't know if they I, – I, I, I should have revisited the article right before we I, – I, I skimmed it. I read it the other day. I know for a fact – 
um, from my notes here that um, it was called the Sinol Aqueduct and it was run by the Spring Valley Water Company. Um, and it helped deliver waters from the foothills of Sinol. I don't know if it ever carried Hetch Hetchy water, but okay. um, but that area it, there's there's areas out there like uh, the the Calaveras Dam uh, mm-hmm. area. That's the part that's the the Hetch Hetchy system. Yeah, and it is now um, the uh, the responsibility overseen by the SFPUC Public Utilities Commission, even though it's located in Alameda County. And, you know, and the East Bay Parks Regional District is, is it's, you know, this multi-governmental agency thing. So, you know, by the time we're dead, um, maybe they'll like break ground on this park. But like maybe. what they're going to they're talking about doing is um, uh, expanding the top of it. Um, it's It's pretty narrow right now. Like if I laid down on top of it uh, perpendicular, I, you know, my feet and head might hang off. Either end, I'm not sure. It, I feel like it was probably. I feel like it was probably about four to five feet wide, from what I yeah. recall. It's not, you know, it's not six feet plus. Yeah, they're going to put in a. They would put in a guard. They would put in a guardrail and a retaining wall, and actually kind of widen the top of it. Um, and I'm assuming build stairs so you don't mm-hmm. have to scramble up like you know a dirt embankment and yeah. like dodge. We had dodged. We had some sketchy climbings up some narrow steep hillsides getting you know slipping yeah. almost and stuff yeah and i got terrible poison oak one time <laughs> um yeah i was telling i was talking to both bart and alex about it um you know bart could go out there with his kids and be like look that's where daddy used to blaze it yeah and, <laughs> and alex was like uh he wants a memorial bench erected in his honor out there that's oh my saying. gosh that's funny that's great um <clears throat> but yeah interesting story interesting piece of bay area history um and something to to watch out for um in the future so uh coming up on the podcast we'll talk with peter astrid kane about his latest cover story the commodification of psychedelics magic mushrooms kevin might be on dispensary shelves sooner than you realize probably wow. soon maybe even sooner than you know the the secret sidewalk gets built out probably to be honest i mean they've been legalized in oregon oregon starts and we we follow suit it seems like imagine that all right uh stay tuned we'll be right back with Peter Astrid Kane, the author of this week's cover story, to talk about what else? Drugs. This week's story in the 420 issue, man, is about the commodification of psychedelics. Uh, This is something um, people have been thinking about and are worried about and maybe ready to cash in on. Pete, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me back. Really. Um, It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. So in your story, um, you know, psychedelics covers a wide range of, of, um, compounds. You focus primarily on, um, psilocybin, the active compound in magic mushrooms. Um, and you know, why don't you just kind of walk us through the arc of your story, if you would. 
Sure. I know. I feel like I've gone from editor emeritus to like the drug correspondent. For <laughs> we can, we can bring you in to, to write yeah. about, I don't know what else next, you know, uh, something very laced up, uh, buttoned up. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's the pandemic dude. Right. Um, yeah, I, this story built off of an earlier story that I wrote earlier this year about, um, California sobriety and taking an extended break from alcohol, but also indulging in other things. And I think most people interpret California sobriety to refer mostly to cannabis, but I'm not a big cannabis consumer. And in the past 12, 13 months, like I really enjoyed, um, psychedelic experiences more than maybe any other time in my life. So it was kind of a natural outgrowth, but then independent of one's personal usage during the semi-isolation of the pandemic, you know, mushroom psilocybin have become much more of a salient drug. It's kind of what's looking to be the next frontier as we undo the 50-year war on drugs and kind of re-examine these substances, not only to look at their, you know, medical or even just recreational purpose, but also in some ways as part of the reckoning with indigenous cultural practices and how these things have been suppressed over time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, let me just be very clear. I am not of indigenous descent in any way. So that really wasn't really the thrust of the story, but that's to me, that's why they're kind of a little bit more uh, in the news. Right. Um, and so some of the folks you talked to in this story, um, you talked to um, a guy out of Oakland, I believe, who has a, a church uh, out there where he um, he delivers, uh, he he facilitates and, and helps people figure out how to, to go and on these trips using psilocybin and to get the most out of it. And I think some of the parishioners or whatever you want to call them are just trying to have fun. I think other people are trying to get a a meaningful, meaningful experience out of this and maybe, you know, unpack trauma or just kind of figure out a little bit, get a better idea of who they are. Um, Anybody who's even slightly familiar with psychedelics knows their value in, um, uh, in helping people take a step back and kind of look at their own consciousness and, and look at things from a a, a different point of view that can be very um, valuable and can, last and and provide lasting impact and meaningful impact long after the the drugs themselves have worn off um and uh the psych uh the psychiatric and and therapeutic uh and the mental health community knows about this and and for for years even dating back to the 80s and i mean i don't know if you want to talk about mk ultra i think that was a little bit more sinister um but you know for years um government um, entities and psychiatrists, um, uh, both with, with the permission of the government and without have been using psychedelics to, you know, uh, help people make breakthroughs. And, and so you talk to people about that as well. Long wind up, um, maybe you can talk about the church and maybe you can also talk about, um, the therapist that you talk to, um, and, and describe some of the different ways that, um, as psychedelics gain more, um, legitimacy in the mainstream, how they're being used. Yeah. You know, it's funny, this story, even though it comes in at like 4,000 and something words actually has like a great deal of negative space in it because the biggest difficulty was actually finding people who wanted to talk at all, Mm -hmm. let alone on the record. I mean, I, 
there, you know, there are all these institutions and all these individuals that I was like, Hey, I'm writing this story. And I sent them other things that I'd written on the hopes that they wouldn't think that I was just some dork and that I actually knew what I was talking about, or I was going to come at it from, you know, a respectful angle and not play up the sort of tabloid sensationalism of it. Mm -hmm. And I just had more doors slam in my face than I would have expected. You know, there's an organization in Oakland called Oakland Haife that it seems to be like a black run institution that helps people who want to grow these plants. It gives them kind of practical uh, advice and sort of a, a, a space to just kind of gather together and do it. And they, they didn't want to talk at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and um so I did get in touch with Dave Hyde, who is from Zydor, which is a church in Oakland that is affiliated with the Church of Ambrosia. That's the the Church of Ambrosia is the non-denominational interfaith uh, religion, as it were, and the actual physical church is Zydor. And so they they got raided in August, um, and it wasn't by the feds or the state or ATF or anybody. It was just by OPD, mm. Oakland Department. And, you know, they were prepared for something sooner or later, but they were taken aback because they had typically had a pretty good relationship with the local cops. They knew who they were. The cops knew what they were doing. And um, it just kind of happened one day. And they they have all these safes and they had cash and they had what they refer to as sacrament, right? The mushrooms mm-hmm. that were all seized. And, you know, I, that to me is kind of fascinating in and of itself. But the way that Dave talks about his use and his proselytizing on behalf of entheogenic plants, right? Which are plants that have psychoactive compounds in them. Entheogenic, etheo meaning God, right? Um, Was actually kind of amazing because you, you, I had to check my preconceived notions at the door. I have, I am very skeptical of pretty much all spirituality and all organized religion. And not only was he very, you know, laid back and chill like he's he himself is kind of surprised that this is where he ended up he was um kind of like a, a cannabro he started the first dispensary in san jose more than a decade ago and he'd always exclusively been a cannabis consumer until his late 30s when he took this giant hit off of a dab rig that basically coated his lungs in a thick layer of wax and he couldn't breathe for eight hours and he was like you know what i think this might be the moment to explain (laughs) my truck use (laughs) if i could interject real quickly that got edited out of the story because i think i see i understand now you were able to explain that to me so quickly just now but we we took it out because i think it would have been too much of an aside but Um, continue you know i as an aside, I love asides. I just think that sometimes that's where the magic happens. But yeah. you know what? You can really lard up. I, I can really lard up a narrative with them. So that's one thing that I always have to w- watch out for. Um, but so, you know, we spoke about the way he has taken larger and larger quantities of mushrooms. And, I, you know, I I like to retain control. You know, yeah. one one mushroom is enough for me. When people's faces start melting, like I'm I'm good. I'm going to enjoy that. Like yeah. I want to see the bright colors. I want to chill. I want to giggle. He takes um, he takes them in a tea, and he was taking um, upward of twenty ounces of mushrooms ground up. Ounces or grams? The grams. Sorry, I'm I'm very weight. Uh, I, I'm bad with weights and measures. Anyway, well, either way, the uh, it's a phenomenal quantity of yeah. psilocybin. I mean, it's it, 
like I just and the thing is like you you know when you get like way too high on cannabis sometimes you wake up the next day and you're like fuck I'm still kind of high according to him mushroom trips last three to four hours no matter what mm. it's not you're not you take these giant doses you're not going to be tripping for, for a day oh. so maybe three to four hours it's just the intensity of it and I'm like okay well what do you see tell me like wh what's the experience and it I was expecting to be like, oh, if you've never done it, you'll never understand. And I mean, he was maybe 15% like that. He was like, yeah, you, you meet these entities and you realize that they're here to teach us things. I'm like, okay, you know, like, and what do they teach you? And of course, that's not, he didn't want to talk about, tell me about that. But, um, you know, when he's preaching to this church, which now he claims a membership of 30,000 people, obviously, not even a small fraction of that is it ever gathering at one one time mm -hmm. on sundays at 4 20 is when they would have you know uh, church and so nobody ever consumes mushrooms on site they smoke a lot of pot and they talk about like best practices and how mushrooms are what he thinks of as like the original way that people you know, our ancient ancestors were having these communal experiences, like the stereotypical beating a drum under a full moon, getting everybody in the village together. You know, everyone is a participant, whether they're standing at the back or they're like really up close in front of the campfire. And it just becomes this like primal ecstatic experience. And he's a proponent of the sort of like the stoned ape theory, where the origin of religion is, you know, our, our simian australopithecine ancestors like devoured a humongous quantity they ate them until they were physically satiated as if for a meal mm -hmm. and got super high and like this is just the origin of of our religious experience whether or not that was an evolutionary advantage that that getting high you accrued some kind of wisdom and that conferred an advantage for your reproduction and here we are thousands of years later so i mean he he has a fairly coherent theology i would say and whether you sign on i mean i think there's kind of a smooth gradient between pure recreation and like a spiritual quest right yeah. and i think he's pretty judgment free about where where a person wants to where, where their entry point into that would be i think i skew further toward the recreational end than maybe some people right. who are really seekers but i mean in the, again like in the last year i just like there have been so many shitty days. We've all, I, I, I can't imagine anybody hasn't had at least like one week long funk here and there. Right. In the last yeah. Year and, change. and like, I don't know, like having these occasional trips that just really, like, I feel good for days afterward, you know? Yeah. So they're very helpful. Uh, an aside I'd like to make is the way that you frame it in your story is uh, for anyone who's familiar with Terrence McKenna, a uh, well-known uh, psychonaut, uh, the late well-known psychonaut. His brother, I believe, is still living and and uh, still talking about psychedelics. Uh, uh, Terrence McKenna would say that the heroic dose was five dried grams, right. and and this this um, this guy's doing way more than that. Um, but Terrence McKenna did talk about you know meeting the entities and talking about how he believed that you know, m mushrooms and some of these other entheogenic chemicals were, were not drugs at all, but were, you know, communication devices uh, with, with the spiritual realm or the cosmic realm. And, you know, that might be a little too hippy dippy for you and too woo woo and that's fine. But, um, you know, if, if you do trip hard, um, 
you you can kind of get a sense of what these people are talking about. I, I've never done the heroic dose. I've never done beyond the, let alone beyond. But um, yeah. Um, and and I, I wanted to make another aside, which was um, the reason. Part of the reason we're talking about this is not just because it's four twenty, but because um, municipalities around the country, um, uh, Oregon, uh, Oakland. Um, and others, which you list in your story, I don't have it pulled up in front of me, are um, decriminalizing and maybe even legalizing um, these entheogenic substances. I think a lot of times the criteria is what they have to be kind of natively occurring in a in a fungus or a plant. And the idea is like, this is law enforcement's lowest, lowest priority. So maybe they're still illegal to grow and sell. But you know, these municipalities are saying, you know, we're not going to come after you for this. And this could be the first step in um, them ending up on dispensary shelves, as you mentioned. And uh, here in San Francisco, our state senator, uh, Scott Weiner, um, is in the process of um, pushing through legislation that would decriminalize psychedelics, certain psychedelic substances in California. Yes. Yes to all of that. Um, yeah, the municipalities nationwide that have decriminalized uh, psilocybin possession tend to be kind of in left-leaning university areas like Santa Cruz or Washtenaw County, Michigan, which is home to Ann Arbor, which is a giant school, right? And so I, you know, I didn't look into the particulars of why, like mechanically how these police departments and local governments kind of agreed to make this happen. But, you know, that, that just seems to be where this movement is taking, you know, the, it's gathering strength. Um, yes, Oakland has, as of uh, June 2019, has officially made it so that mushrooms are the lowest law enforcement priority for the police department. But again, like OPD is who banged down the door of the Zide church. So mm -hmm. there is some sort of discrepancy there. And the way uh, Dave talked about it on a separate podcast, Psychedelic Times that he was on, you know, it, he talked about it more like a civil asset forfeiture kind of way where this is just a cash cow mm. for police departments and it's simply too lucrative for them to pass up. So you know, ah, they're kind of playing chicken with the fucked up. It's fucked up. It's really, really fucked up. I learned about that, and I believe the in that uh, documentary Thirteenth. Um, for anybody who doesn't know what Pete is talking about, um, when law enforcement believes that um, you're committing a crime or selling drugs, and they find, you know, cash on you, yeah. guns on you, your the car you're driving, they can take all of it, and it just becomes theirs. Yeah, you basically never get it back. Um, and so even where places have decriminalized, it's not the same as legalization. And that's a really important point to make because it, it basically is this kind of limbo. Mm -hmm. um, Scott Wiener's bill, you know, Scott Wiener being about as controversial of a figure as you'll find, probably the hardest working legislator in Sacramento, but he's, he's great. Sort of reviled by many on the left for, you know, his... Uh, stances on housing, but he does come out with, like, he just cranks out one intensely progressive policy plank and proposal after another, and this is the latest salvo, and, you know, it passed through a key committee on a 6-1 vote, where not only is it, it's not decriminalization, it is legalization, and is not merely uh, psilocybin, but it also includes MDMA, and I think there were a couple of other substances on there. I mean, it's, it is as far-ranging as any bill I know of anywhere. And the fact that it not it escaped, you know, the committee that could have throttled it by a pretty commanding vote suggests that in our 
democratically controlled supermajority legislature, it may very well become California law in a year or two. I think that would be um, kind of incredible because it does suggest that sooner or later, because we already have the infrastructure that Prop 64 established to kind of provide us this wonderland of cannabis and, and cannabis infused goods, that perhaps the next few years on those shelves, we could see, you know, uh, space age polymers containing other substances. <laughs> yeah. And I don't, I don't know. I kind of go back and forth on that. It definitely sucks the glamour out of drug culture to yeah. have it like heavily taxed. And you, you, you imagine just seeing like a long scroll, like Walgreens receipt with like your mushrooms <laughs> on it. I don't know. That just seems slightly weird to me, but you know, Dave Hyde, the, the cannabis preacher, as he points out, it's like, it's not going to be this Silicon Valley startup gold mine the way cannabis was because people simply can't consume enough psilocybin to really make it viable as a consumer product in the same way. Right. And then, and yet at the same time, um, we are seeing um, um, signs that um, the tech industry or, or the medical industry does maybe want to sink its teeth into this um, this space. Um, we have the uh, the video that I sent you, um, which you which you mentioned toward the end of the story. There's this um, company called Cybin, and they are partnering with another company called Colonel. And the idea is to use this sort of you called it the the hat that uh, Doc is wearing when Marty McFly meets him in 1955, wearing that hat and tripping, I guess, and trying to understand, you know, what's going on in the brain um, while this is happening. I, I also wanted to touch upon, you know, like there is uh, a drug that's been widely used um, as a, uh, one of the cornerstones of, you know, what you in, in the, the cocktail called general anesthesia when they put you under. Um, that would be ketamine. Um, ketamine is a very safe drug. It's on the, um, the the World Health Organization's list of essential drugs. And it's also recreationally used to take the edge off after a night of partying. Famously, in like rave culture, it's like you're, you're up all, all night dancing and grinding your teeth on MDMA. And then when you want to come down, you take a little bit of ketamine. But if you take a lot of it, um, either when it's given to you by a doctor um, or, um, or, you know, you fall into the K-hole purposely or un, uh, accidentally, you kind of go into like this trance state. And so it's, it's a drug that's sort of on, on the border of um, being a psychedelic and being something else. But, um, you know, that drug is, is, since it was already approved by the FDA, is currently being used to treat depression um, and um, also something called complex regional pain syndrome. I, I, I haven't published this story, but like I talked to this woman who um, underwent this process and I haven't verified this, but she claims that they kept her on a slow ketamine drip 24 seven for five days straight. And, and it was, it was under medical supervision and she talked to God and did all kinds of other weird things. But in the end, her complex regional pain syndrome um, was basically cured for, for months it she stopped feeling pain for months um it started to come back though but um so there there's that there's ketamine and then i wanted to mention one more thing uh, i don't think these are legal but you know dmt now can be put in one of the in the vape pens like can you imagine one day 
going to your dispensary and getting a, a vape pen, a DMT, that's a drug that I don't think, I don't know. I mean, that, that drug requires practice and, and um, um, what do you call it, intentionality, especially at high doses. I feel like this was an invitation for me to out myself as a very a consumer of various substances, but um, <laughs> you brought up so many things all at once. I'm like, okay, I should have been taking notes. But um, ketamine, yes, the ketamine is slightly uh, hallucinogenic, but it's also like a dissociative. Right, that's right. Um, and you know, I, I'm not going to lie, I I like ketamine. It's super weird. It's just it's just the strangest experience. It's very short lasting as far as i can tell there are no side effects or after effects like you don't nothing happens um and it's really strange and i it's quite enjoyable from time to time mm-hmm. dmt kind of scares the shit out of me though like i don't know like i don't i don't think of myself as a psychonaut and you yeah. know, some of some people like the other entheogenic plants right and again these are plants where we're not decriminalization doesn't cover like you can't lick a toad you can't mm-hmm. synthesize these things in a factory to have it be covered it always has to be derived from a plant um you know like there's ibogaine which yeah you know, I, I don't have any experience with ibogaine dies or one every one every four every 400 people but it's usually because they're they have other pharmaceutical compounds in their system and that interacts with it and gives you like a heart attack or whatever mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't, I don't want to mess around with that. Ayahuasca, you're going to vomit. And it does seem like it got kind of conquered by Silicon Valley, uh, uh, bro culture. just like the anarcho-capitalists who just want to unlock the potential of your mind to just yeah. work 24 hours a day, seven days a week to become this like master capitalist that, that doesn't really yeah. appeal to me so much either. Um, DMT though, I mean, I, 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 there's no drug out there, recreational drug out there that I have heard more polarizing reports of. I have never done it. I probably should do it. I don't want to do it. I don't know. It's like, who, who's doing DMT that I want to do DMT with? Well, I, 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 without, I'll tell you a little something about DMT. There's, there's a threshold that, um, I certainly haven't passed. That is, you know, it's, it's enjoyable. Um, but what I understand is you can go to this completely other place yeah. that is, uh, that can be scary, can be, uh, difficult to get to, um, and remember, um, you know, I think Terrence McKenna talked a lot about, a lot about this and got me interested in it as a, as a young man. And I've only dabbled a few times, but, um, you know, he, he, he says, you know, to kind of break through is what they call it. You, you really, and God, I sound like Joe Rogan right now, but, <laughs> but you, you have to like be really intentional about it. Um, um, but he, I think DMT was his, was his favorite. But anyway, I guess what I'm saying, maybe this is a long way of saying like, there's, there's all these substances. Um, and, um, you know, it's crazy to think that they would all be legal, but I think you touch upon this in your story. Um, you know, mushrooms, of all of all the substances are kind of an entry entry level thing maybe for lack of a, a better term you you're saying they only last a, a couple of drug. hours <laughs> what's that a gateway drug if you will <laughs> a gateway drug <laughs> a gateway drug to yeah um so i could see i could see mushrooms being a, a thing you know i didn't know that about the only um the the the, the only 4 hours no matter how high of a dose you take Right. That, I mean, I believe him when he says so, but that seems, I'm surprised. You just think like you, you ingest a certain amount of a substance. It takes your body X amount of time to mm-hmm. 
metabolize it. And apparently that's just how that works. You did. One thing I do want to come back to is the medical application. Right. You know, it's, it's not, it's not correct to really think of this as recreational to spiritual. There is the medical dimension and, you know, we're, we're being a little bit silly because it's hard not to talk about recreational drugs and giggle a little bit, but like, you know, people experience pain and the body is complicated and you know we don't really understand what causes an itch like the the central nervous system is still quite a mystery to medical science right and if these substances can help people who have you know people with ptsd from returning from overseas theaters of war or whatever right you mentioned that woman who had a five-day drip i i don't know about the story i'm definitely going to look this one up but you know the you think about people in the last 25 years who have diagnoses like fibromyalgia or Epstein-Barr or chronic Lyme disease, which are controversial ailments. There are, there are physicians who think that, that you're making it up. It's all in your head. You yeah. want attention, some kind of condescending attitude. And there's people who are like, no, motherfucker, I'm in, <laughs> in agony. Like, yeah. what do I have to do to prove that this is happening? And if we are finally turning the page where people whose ailments have been dismissed as either you know, exaggerated or made up are now finding new methods of treatment, then I think that not only is it to be lauded on for, for them to experience relief, but also it represents like a sea change in the way that, in the way that pain management is treated. Mm-hmm. And you talk to a woman who runs a uh, program that she calls, uh, get the fuck out of your own way. Is, is that uh, get the fuck out of your way? And, and, and psilocybin is, is a component in that. So her name is Dina justice. I, I asked around through my, my hippiest friends. I was like, who I'm writing this story. Does anybody know anybody? Who should I talk to? I know, I know some of you know somebody. And so she, Dina is, you know, she's essentially a life coach. Um, I suspect that she charges a very large amount of money for her services and she's very selective about which clients she takes on. So she has a very long intake session with people. Typically, um, the example she gave me, I didn't, I didn't put it in the story, but the example she gave me was someone who um, basically wanted to be a musician and wasn't sure that it was possible to kind of make a living through that kind of work. And he was stuck because he was miserable doing anything else, but he didn't want to be like 50 and broke. Mm-hmm. And so she worked with him and part of that work involved guided trips and basically he managed to come up with some kind of she was here's a little cagey on the details i think she wanted to respect his privacy but he's now working in some he started his own business and it's kind of like an auxiliary music industry service kind of thing and he's making good money and he's fulfilled and happy and so her thing is she's very cognizant of the way in which you know, helping somebody achieve that kind of personal fulfillment in a capitalist society such as ours often means having them make a lot more money than they were making before. Mm-hmm. And she's she's aware that that's kind of messed up because the idea, she's reifying the idea that the more money you make, the happier you'll be, which is not really true. But in a lot of ways, like a little more money would make most of us a little happier. And if you do find a way to do what you love and make money off of it, I think that is pretty satisfying for most people. So the way she framed it was she charged him about like 20% of his annual income before he made this career change. And now he's making bank. And so she's proud of that. And I think that that's respectable. 
Yeah. And I back to what you said, the the medical field is looking into this um, and and in some in some cases uh, already using it, you know, especially with the ketamine therapy. That's something you could look. You could Google that and you can find, you know, FDA approved board certified physicians um, doing some of these treatments. And again, it's, I believe, used to treat two things specifically, um, certain kinds of pain and um, and depression. Um, but, you know, also looking into how psychedelics can help people work through trauma and, and if it works, and I think I can definitely see a way that it would work. I know, I know that it's worked. Um, it's, it's, it's an emerging field and it's interesting. And I guess one would just hope that it doesn't get completely commodified. And as you pointed out, um, and as, um, God, I'm terrible with names. The man from the uh, Zydor pointed out, you know, yeah, it might be difficult to commodify this because it would be hard to sell enough of it. Yes. And I, I also just want to tie this into to the federal drug schedule. But I think people know by now that cannabis is a schedule one drug alongside heroin and LSD which the, the federal definition is that not only is there no currently accepted medical use, but there is also a high potential for abuse. And I think pretty much everybody would agree that cannabis does not fit that category yeah. in any way, shape, or form. Ketamine, which I think has a reputation for being this like crazy weird thing, is actually Schedule 3, which is l- moderate to low potential for psych- physical and psychological dependence. So the reputation of these drugs tends to have nothing to do with the federal government's classification, which tends to have nothing to do with the actual medical applications. Of right. So it's all completely nonsense. So when we talk about like what things are going to get commodified or when, like we have to get through this cuckoo hurdle before any of that really is um, going to happen. All right. So um, the story nonetheless is called The Commodification of Psychedelics. Uh, it is on the streets right now in SF Weekly newsstands. The author is Peter Astrid Kane. I want to thank them again for joining us on this podcast. Thank you so much, Pete. Nick, always a pleasure, really. Thanks. All right. Take care. so much for tuning into this week's edition of the SF Weekly Podcast. The episode was produced by me, Nick Veronin. Our inimitable co-host is Kevin Hume. Our engineer is Mike Huguenor. For more hot takes, deep dives, and alternative views on San Francisco news, subscribe to our podcast through Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next week.